Hey, Three Crosses family, welcome back to the Going Deeper podcast. My name's AJ Venegas. I'm the pastor of Life Groups and Discipleship. Today, we're going over Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, talking about the unlikely hero, the transformation of Saul into Paul. And so with that, let's go deeper. Joining me for week two of this Unlikely Hero series is none other than Pastor Danny Strange. Pastor Danny, welcome back to the podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's always a good time talking about the book of Acts, the Bible in general, but we are talking about the transformation of Saul into the Apostle Paul. And we're looking at verses 1 through 12 today. Uh I'll read verses one to two to start off with, and we'll dive right into the questions. So, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So last week we oriented our audience to who this Saul of Tarsus is. And uh, we talked a little bit about his background. Um, It left me kind of curious, and I felt like there was a question that was still on the table. Uh, His name, Saul, it kind of reminds me of another Old Testament character by the name of Saul as well. So I was wondering, just to start off with, is there any connection that we're supposed to be making between the Saul of the Old Testament and the Saul here? Yeah, there's a a field called reading the Bible as literature. And if the Bible was merely a work of literature, we would say, okay, this is unmistakable. This guy has the same name as this Old Testament King Saul, right? There's all of these different parallels. And yet here's part of the beauty and and, uh, interesting nature of the text of scripture is that these, this is true. These are real historical events. Saul of Tarsus was a real person. And yes, most likely named after King Saul in the Old Testament by his parents. We see from his pedigree, he was a, a deeply a Jewish individual in every way. He talks about that later. Um, and so in a sense, total coincidence. In another sense, right, we see in the scriptures naming things is powerful, even in the sense that God changes Saul's name to Paul and gives him a new destiny attached to that. And so I think, yeah, we have to, on one hand, realize that this is just his name. But on the other hand, we see this symbolism. Both of these men were powerful figures in the scriptures. Both these men, both these men were, were zealous uh, and used their power trying for good, but also we root for them that they might have heart transformation. So we see in the Old Testament, Saul eventually loses his kingship uh, because of some mistakes he makes in worship and some arrogance and things on his part. Um, And here we see this Saul arrested by God and redirected. And so really the the beautiful thing about this uh, unlikely hero, Saul becoming Paul, is instead of removing his leadership, God renews him, gives him a new heart, a new mission, a new life, and a second chance at it. And so part of it is almost like Saul is the new and better Saul of the Old Testament who gets a second chance at life because he's recreated by Jesus himself on the other side of the resurrection. It's amazing that we see a similar story of the anointed one, Jesus Christ, and in the Old Testament case, David, uh, sparing the life of this Saul and uh, seeing what happens. And so Uh, Let's get into what happens on the road to Damascus here. This is starting at verse 3, 
As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. And so we've talked a little bit about the response that Saul gives here. Who are you, Lord? As well as the response that Jesus offers, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And the thing I loved about your sermon is that you mentioned that there's always seems to be events in our lives that just flip our lives upside down. And I was thinking as you were mentioning that, man, it would be really cool to have an event like the road to Damascus happened to me where it's just so obvious that Jesus shows up to you and uh, you have all these flashes of light surrounding you. And it just becomes so clear that Jesus is who he says he is. And um, yeah, in one sense, I was sort of jealous of Saul here that why couldn't this happen to me? Yet when you were talking, I got the sense that this kind of has happened to me. And I think you were pointing that out in people's lives of like, man, maybe it's a diagnosis that you receive. Or in my case, I know it was a sudden rapid career change based off of a couple things that happened to me. And so I'm wondering what makes this instance right here so unique to Paul? Like in the same sense that my story, the change in career path was so unique or in somebody else's story, it might be that diagnosis. It might be that bad news that flips somebody's life up, upside down. Why is this instance so unique and stands out to Paul himself from what we know about Saul? I think in the same way you know, that you mentioned, there's this kind of once in a lifetime change of trajectory that you experienced, uh, which wasn't you becoming a Christian, but you changing your career. This is a once in a lifetime moment. So yeah, on one hand, uh, this is one of those moments that not all of us even experience, but, but the time in our life where our direction changes. And so this is huge for him. Um, we get the imagery of that as we look at this text. There's this imagery around light and darkness, blindness and seeing, almost death and life. And so we get this idea that this is almost like a light switch flipping in Saul's life or a direction change or a new birth into something else. This is a moment for him where everything about his life, he was on the road, the way to Damascus, now he's on a new way, Jesus afterwards, all the symbolism points to this is a pivotal point in this guy's life. And I think what's pivotal for him specifically uh, is that, man, he was such a leader in the church of God before Jesus in the Jewish community. Uh, this is Jesus himself coming to him and saying, you've got everything about your life wrong. You've been so zealous to follow me, but you're doing it the wrong way even revealing himself and saying, uh, I am Jesus, right? Just there's such an irony there. And, uh, you know, our hearts break a little bit for Saul because it's God himself is speaking to him. And Saul has been spending his whole life serving quote unquote God. And he doesn't even recognize God when he comes to him. He says, who are you Lord? And so it feels like, wow, for Saul, he is moving from being a leader amongst the Jewish community to now being almost the chief leader amongst the Christian community, which cannot be explained in any other way than a miraculous act of God. Because to Saul up to this point, these two communities are incompatible to the point that his mission in life is persecuting, even to the extent of murdering people who follow Jesus. I think it's amazing to revisit some of the imagery from not only the Old Testament, but the Gospels as well, where it's 
there's always that imagery of light and thunder and these glory clouds that uh, hover over, you know, on Exodus and um, Mount Sinai and the the vision that Ezekiel experiences. And then even the transfiguration of seeing the the light that surrounds the the true form of Jesus as he's revealing himself to his disciples. And so I found a really cool quote from one of the commentaries I was reading and it says, Saul didn't necessarily find a new God to worship, but he discovered that he had been in rebellion against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which would have meant a lot to him by refusing to acknowledge Jesus as the son of God. And so we have this instance where Jesus interacts with Saul, who would eventually become the apostle Paul, which leads me to my skeptic question here, because as you notice, his name changes to Paul, and then it gets this title, Apostle Paul. And so Paul uses this appearance of Christ in the letters that he's about to write to the churches as the basis for his own apostleship. In other words, because he witnessed Christ in this way, because he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, he now begins to claim that he is on par with the apostles. And essentially he writes to the churches on that authority saying, I saw the risen Jesus. I am an apostle. And this was heavily debated. And I still think it's heavily debated today because you think about it. Well, Paul, Saul, this guy didn't really walk with Jesus. Uh, he persecuted them. Uh, he didn't see the events of the cross. He didn't see all the things that went went down. And so uh, there was a lot of debates about, do we take Paul's writing as authoritative from an apostle? And so I'm wondering what you say to that. What do you say when um, maybe people today look at Paul's letter and, and say, no, he wasn't really there. It was like a you know, we're not really sure what happened in that moment. Was it really Christ? Was he imagining things? Um, and why should we have confidence in Paul's apostleship? Yeah, wow. The, you know, there's two types of apostles in the New Testament. Uh, the Greek word apostolo, is that apostolo? Mm -hmm. um, means to send, right? And so an apostle is someone who has been sent. And lowercase apostle is just any Christian who's sent by God, right? So AJ, you have an experience where God sends you into ministry. You are an apostle with a lowercase a because you've been sent by God. We are all lowercase a apostles in a sense. We are sent by the Great Commission. Capital A apostles, like you mentioned, are those who are sent by Jesus himself. And so most of them, it's because they were part of those original 12 disciples that were sent literally in Matthew 28 and other places by Jesus himself saying, I am sending you. And so Paul makes this claim that even though I wasn't there on the mountain with the Great Commission, I was sent by Jesus himself. And on one hand, we get it right? You would not claim, even though Jesus called you into ministry or Jesus changed your life path, you wouldn't say with the same veracity, I was sent by Jesus himself. Paul is saying, no, I'm telling you, it was Jesus himself. It was this uh, appearance of the Lord after his resurrection. I saw him. I was sent by him with his voice. It was not an angel sent on his behalf. It was him. And I think Paul's claim means that he is either starting a new religion or continuing in the lineage of the apostles as an apostle of the same kind, right? So you think of a, you know, maybe, you know, flash forward 2000 years, you've got a Joseph Smith who would say he had an appearance from an angelic being who set him forth on this mission. 
And we look at Joseph Smith's mission. We look at his message. We look at his doctrine. We look at what the scriptures teach us of even, even an angel gives you a gospel other than what it was delivered to you, let him be condemned. And we say, no, that's a cult. That's a new religion. Mormonism is not compatible with the Christian faith. He's different. Paul has an appearance with the Lord and is sent on this mission. And that's how better the wrestling match along the way is. Is this something that's okay? We're trying to reach Gentiles. It's a it's a distinct kind of set of callings to bring the gospel to a group of people we never intended. But as we look at the New Testament writings and Jesus teachings, we realize that is what Jesus was trying to do, right? Acts 1.8, uh, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we get Paul introduced to us as the one who's going to carry the original gospel to the ends of the ancient Near East, to, to Rome itself by Acts 28. And so we see that Paul is not starting a third new religion, but is a, a part of the same religion as the other apostles sent by Jesus himself. And I think the controversy would remain in the early church if it wasn't for the way that Jesus did it. Right? You'll notice in verses 9 through 12, after Saul is made blind, sent onto straight street, put in that house, eating or not eating, not drinking for three days. He doesn't just open Saul's eyes and send him on his way, but he sends a, a Christian person of good standing to him to take part, lay hands on him and have his ministry commence. And I think that is part, I think one of the biggest reasons Jesus sent Ananias to initiate Paul's journey is to show the church this person is part of you, sent by me, and the same spirit that sent him on his mission is the spirit that's working through Ananias to let the scales fall off of Saul's eyes. He's one of us. And so we see him being grafted in in those next three verses. And then like we'll talk about next week, we see that there's a bit of a, a conflict until he's fully embraced as part of them. So I think seeing that Paul was part of the Christian community shows us that he was sent by Jesus himself um, and I think the the interaction that Paul had with Jesus, even though it's similar in kind to the type of interaction we all have with Jesus, it's different. Right? He literally saw Jesus and literally was sent by Jesus himself. Well, speaking of continuing with the Christian community, um, I'm struck by Jesus's response here where he simply says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And before we move on from this section, I just wanted to ask, is there any significance in that statement? Because we certainly know that Paul wasn't actually physically persecuting Jesus himself. And so what does he mean by saying, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, insinuating that, yeah, it was actually Jesus who you were persecuting? That statement is a powerful statement and also kind of adds to this idea of Paul's apostleship with a capital A, because the first two Greek words are ego and me, I am, I am Jesus, um, which if you're familiar with the Greek New Testament, especially in the book of John, we see these I am statements are powerful statements from Jesus where he claims who he is and he claims himself to have authority. And so we see this powerful statement, I am Jesus, kind of like God tells Moses, I am who I am. But then he says, whom you are persecuting, which is a different kind of powerful statement because like you said, Paul is not persecuting Jesus. Jesus has been ascended into heaven for quite some time. Paul is persecuting guys like Stephen, Christian people. And so this, this 
partners in with what Jesus said in his earthly ministry, that that somehow he is the image of the invisible God. He is the Imago Dei, like we talked about in January. But at the same time, uh, we who are his body are almost literally his body. And that's how he treats us. Jesus says in Matthew, if you give a cold cup of water in my name, you do it to unto me, that somehow when we serve those in need, we're serving Jesus himself. Uh, and so this bold claim that if you are persecuting Christians, you are persecuting Christ comes from the mouth of Jesus himself, right? And so my heart breaks for people around the world today who are persecuting the Christian church because someday they'll stand face to face with Jesus himself and find out that they were putting to death Jesus mm. by putting to death our brothers and sisters around the world. And yet Paul has the grace of having that sobering encounter in the midst of his life with the ability to repent and change his ways and experience the grace and forgiveness of the Lord and be renewed. It's so powerful to see that union that Christ talks about um, being a part of the body life of the church. And so this is the transformation that we'll see Saul go into Paul as he starts to get engrafted into this church community. And so his first step is to get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And that's what Jesus says to him. And you pointed out that, you know, if God is able to flip your life upside down. He also has the ability to turn it right side up and he's currently planning that out. And so you pointed to Ananias and just reading Acts 9 verses 10 to 12 here. He tells Ananias to go to the house of Judas on straight street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And it's such a beautiful picture of just God working simultaneously to bring these two parties together to show his sovereignty overall. And so uh, some of the application points that you pointed us to in terms of this lesson is to listen for God's voice and follow God's leading. Um, I was thinking through the lens of Ananias here and I was thinking, you know, if I would have heard that, Go to Saul of Tarsus, you know, the guy who's coming and persecuting the church and it might arrest you and might even have you killed. Go to that guy. I would have some doubts of, man, is this God's voice really? And I wonder how many of us have that similar feeling when they feel like the Lord might be talking to them. How do we know? How do we know this is the right move? How do we know this isn't me making this up? And so, I want to tap into your pastoral experience here and just ask you, how have you helped people discern the voice of God? How have you helped them listen and be able to test whether it is actually God speaking to them and it is something that, you know, God is wanting them to do? Yeah, that's a delicate issue because even, you know, in this, in this case, in Acts chapter nine, from a 10,000 foot view, this story is so dripping with symbolism it's unmistakable that God is doing something here and that what God is calling Ananias to do is the right thing, right? But when you're Ananias, it's hard to see that, right? I mean, I'm just, I'm blown away as you even read those verses, just how much symbolism is in this story, right? We have a, a man who becomes blind, but we realize in the story that he actually already was blind, right? When Jesus says, uh, stop persecuting me, he says, who are you, Lord? This is a statement of blindness. But then Jesus makes him blind 
to show him the light, right? So there's already, okay, there's a bunch of symbolism. This guy moves from the road to Damascus on the way to kill Christians. And now he's on straight street, right? He is on, he's on the straight and narrow path, right? He's in the heart of the house of Judas, which was the disciple who apostle who betrayed Jesus and was put to death. And it's almost like Judas who hung himself, spilled out his guts on the ground. Now coming out of the ashes is this new man, Paul, right? He's Hmm. born into the office of Judas, which we know, right? If you read back in the book of Acts, different men were put into the office of Judas. We never hear those guys' name anywhere. But Paul's name, he almost becomes the renewed Judas coming out of this house on straight street, no longer on the road to Damascus. When Ananias finds Paul, it's almost like he's an infant on the ground, right? He has not yet opened his eyes. He has not yet taken his first bite of food. He has not yet taken his first sip of water as a Christian. He is helpless on on the ground. He is cold and I don't think he's actually naked, but in a sense, right? I just picture this like like this curled up ball of a man who has never yet taken his first step as a believer of Jesus. He hasn't stepped into his new name yet, right? Saul is dead and a new man is being born. But in order for this man to be born, a Christian needs to go to him, place his hand on him, pray for him. And the moment Ananias prays for him, the scales fall from his eyes and he stands up and starts eating and drinking and preaching the gospel. It's like he is generated into new life. So this is like, man, Nicodemus talks about being born again. This is the grandest picture of a person being born again we see in the scripture, a guy dying into Judas's house and then reemerging in his apostleship uh, to go and preach the gospel, right? So from that 10,000 foot view, it's like, of course, this is God's hand. <laughs> but if you're an IS, hey, there's a guy in a house and he used to kill Christians <laughs> and you should go and like be his friend and tell him, introduce him to all your Christian friends who are trying to live undercover because they might kill him. You can understand the hesitation, right? And so in the same way, uh, I think if you are a person today and you're listening to the podcast and you've got something God's leading you into, you know, I don't want to over-spiritualize it. You're probably not having scales on your eyes. You're probably not, right? Whatever. But Let's let's talk about some of the things that you can do to make sure this is God's will. Number one, right? Paul's will aligns with Jesus' own words, right? So Jesus is the one telling him to do it, right? And so are the things that God is calling you to do aligning with Jesus' words, with the word of God, with the Bible, right? Uh, Jesus said in John 17, 17, I have come that they might know truth. My word is truth, right? And so does the pathway that is being revealed to you by God isn't in alignment with the word of God. Second, I think of Ananias as a human coming to Paul to verify and lay hands on him. This is part of, if you've got something you wrestle with, bring it to someone who is a Christian in good standing in relationship with God. And if it's bonkers, they'll tell you, right? And if it's like, that actually might be from God, they'll tell you that too, right? The spirit does work in community. The spirit does work, work through his word. And I do think there's a subjective nature a lot of times where you might be feeling like, hey, here's this thing that God's prompting me to do. I'm not sure, right? And so God prescribes ways in his scriptures of finding wisdom around things, right? And so there's James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously without finding fault. Uh, And when he asks, he should believe and not doubt, right? So there's this, okay, God prescribes a way to find wisdom. And here's the way you need wisdom. You should pray about it. 
You need wisdom, you should look into the word. You need wisdom, you should go talk to Christian friends. You need wisdom, you can fast and say, God, I, I just need wisdom. And then if you need wisdom, then make a decision. And James says, don't doubt that decision. You've done what God has prescribed a human to do to find wisdom. Now walk in the truth, right? And I do not think if God is leading you to start a Bible study and you ask your friends and you pray about it and you look at the word and you're like, I think this is what I should do. And then you do it, that God's in heaven's like, Nope, you made the wrong decision, right? I don't want to say who cares, but at the end of the day, that's a good thing. Just do it. And I don't think God's will is one where he's trying to get you to divine what he believes through like reading the tea leaves or something. I think he'll make it plain to you. Um, And I do feel like sometimes these issues are more simple and plain than we realize when we just bring them to to God in prayer, bring them into community, bring them against the light of his word. Um, And if you do those things and you ask God for wisdom, uh, step into that, walk into it and, and trust him that he has given you the wisdom you've been asking for. This leads to the last two verses here to wrap things up. Uh, Starting from verse seven, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This is where the imagery that you were talking about of this infant being born for the first time uh, is played out here. And um, it's pretty interesting when you think about that because, you know, his eyes were affected, clearly. He was blind. But I don't read that his mouth was affected. And so it seems like an intentional choice to go and not eat anything or drink anything for three days. And I guess I'm in a context where I'm flummoxed by this because we're surrounded by food and grocery stores where we can get basically whatever we want. And, uh, you know, I have a feeling a lot of people feel that way about fasting in general. And so that was one of your last application points was engage in the practice of fasting. And it feels like Paul, Saul, understood what was going on here. Like there was something intentional about his choice to not eat or drink anything because his mouth wasn't affected. He he was making this choice to do this. I'm wondering, as we close the podcast here, could you help us unpack why Saul is deciding to fast here? what's going on in his mind, and how that helps us apply the practice of fasting today. Yeah, the scriptures don't tell us why Saul fasted. I've got three ideas, uh, and I don't know which one's true, and maybe they're all true, (laughs) right? One is uh, fasting as a trauma response. So Saul just had a very traumatic experience where he is blind. He is having to be led by the hand. Uh, I don't, like you said, I don't know if he's talking at all, but if he's talking to the companions, they're like, yeah, we didn't hear anything, but he unmistakably heard something and he unmistakably heard something that is diametrically opposed to everything he lives for. And if that doesn't traumatize a person, I don't know what will. (laughs) And, you know, I I think of traumatic events that people experience and oftentimes, right, even in, in something as common in life, like mourning, you lose a loved one. And the biggest question we ask is, hey, did you eat today? And a lot of times the answer is like, no, I actually haven't eaten today. So you need to eat something because in trauma, uh, we just lose our appetite and forget. Mm -hmm. Second, like you mentioned, uh, there's a fasting and lack of access, right? Where Paul is blind. He's in a house he does not recognize. He's Mm -hmm. on the ground, right? Probably. I don't know if his companions are still there. Um, He's like, he's 
it's not like he's like, I'm going to go to Starbucks now. All right. So there's a lack of access to food. There's a loneliness that God lets him experience. Uh, it almost feels like, right, Jesus in the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days, 40 nights. He ate no food. He drank no water. The biggest reason he didn't eat was because he was on a spiritual discipline. The second biggest reason was he was in the desert and there's no food to eat, right? So even if he was hungry, all he could do is make stones become bread, right? This is where people right. die of exposure. Uh, so Saul was in a place where he didn't seem to have access to food. And third, I would guess there's a fasting as a spiritual discipline where he needs wisdom. He needs to hear from the Lord. He just heard from the Lord and he needs the Lord to confirm this is true. And so a lot of times, right, fasting is a megaphone that, that believers attach to their prayers when they're saying, God, I need you to answer this one. It's of tantamount importance. And so if there was ever a time where Paul was praying and saying, God, I need an answer, please, this would be the time. And so if he was in his right mind making good decisions, a great decision right now is I should probably pray and fast until I figure out <laughs> how to get my sight back because I literally can't do it myself. And God either answers his fast by sending Ananias or relieves him of his pain by sending Ananias or both. But uh, there's a lot of reasons to fast. And I think he's in the midst of all of them. So we're at the early stages of Saul's transformation into Paul. And as we're thinking about our own stories of transformation, I'm wondering what this scene here and Paul's posture in this scene, um, how that helps us think about our own transformation, whether we're in the situation of Saul uh, resistant to the faith, maybe having these experiences or whether we've been a Christian for a long time. So at the beginning of this transformation story, all of this things happening, how, how can we better view that story and uh, have a heart that's drawn toward wanting to hear from the Lord? Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny. You, you see a story like this and, and on one hand we can long to have that kind of experience, that kind of clarity. God, give me a mission. At the same time, we read the story and if we really read it and marinate in it, we realize how traumatic it is even when God rescues a person, right? I think when you talk about him changing his name, part of it's, you know, even in our culture, right? Your name indicates your family connection, right? Saul is a very Jewish name uh, and Paul is a very Greek name. Mm -hmm. At the same time, right, changing someone's last name, when a wife takes the name of her husband, she's leaving her family and connection and entering into this new family with her husband. And this is all happening to Saul in this moment, right? We, we find out later in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that he's unmarried, right? And some scholars believe that that means he used to be married. It's like, did he lose his wife as a result of his conversion, right? Was uh, his community, did they boot him out, right? You don't hear... Saul is so connected in Jewish society, you hear zero about his Jewish connections from this point forward. Mm -hmm. And you would guess based on everything else you read, read in ancient civilizations, in biblical situations, and even in uh, patriarchal societies like this today, uh, when someone converts religions, they lose all of their family, all of their friends, everything, their kids, their spouse. He lost it all. He did not just lose his sight. He lost his past life. Um, and has to reckon with that, right? And so this is a beautiful thing, but this is death that results in resurrection. Hmm. And I think that's, that's on one hand, this is what we should all be looking for, right? We should pick up our cross daily and follow Jesus. But there is a, a sobriety that comes from what Jesus is calling us to is the death that results in resurrection, that we can die to our lives here on this earth 
and be resurrected into a new one. And so I, I think that the question we have to ask ourselves is, is Jesus a safe person or a safe God to release my entire life into the hands of, right? And uh, because if every day we wake up and we die to our own will, we die to our own finances, we die to our own passions, we die to our own lusts, we die to our old way of life, we die to our sin, we die to our righteousness, we die to our credentials, we die to our life plan, we die to our family, we hate our family in, in comparison to, to the love we have for Jesus. If we do that every day, is it going to result in our flourishing or is it going to result in just completely losing everything? And I think all of us who've ever had that experience, including the Apostle Paul, would say that God never fails to catch you and to recraft something beautiful in you. Um, and yet the posture we learn from this experience and from the teachings of Jesus is resurrection comes after death. We have to release ourselves into his hand and let him form our life. And that's what I'm looking forward to seeing is just that life after this scene of death and, you know, everything that Saul lost here, just uh, following his story and seeing the brilliant light life that emerges. So I'm really looking forward to the next couple of messages and uh, Pastor Danny, thanks for the conversation. I can't wait to continue.